Mr. Benedict, I'm afraid you've been employing an ex-convict. As you know, the NGC is Goddamn right cracker. Excuse me? You heard what I said. Black man can't earn a decent wage in this state. That is oh, absolutely like you're going to try to throw me sir. out on the street. No, no, I'm trying to do my job, yeah, sir. Do your job. What you want from me, man? Want me to get on the table and dance? Let me shine your shoes? Want me to smile at you? You definitely won't let me deal the cars. You might as well call it White Jack. a special guest. He is a comic writer, a filmmaker, and a generally cool internet friend of mine, David Avalone. You can find him on Twitter at DAvalone. You can check out his wonderful show, Pulp Today, on Twitter, YouTube, or Instagram TV. You can also check out his work on his website, davidavalonefreelance.com. Avalone, of course, is spelled A-V-A-L-L-O-N-E. Let's get into this week's episode. <laughs> I'm very glad I never got to Harry Potter. <laughs> well, so I loved the books growing up. I became more critical of them as I got older. I liked the first Fantastic Beasts movie because J.K. Rowling finally made a character that was a woman and wasn't pun- punished for being feminine. And then in the second movie, they punished her for being feminine and suddenly turned her into a ditz. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> Hang yeah. on a goddamn second. <laughs> I just don't understand. She's just like blatantly transphobic. It's not yes. even. Oh uh, yeah. It's it's not even like thinly veiled. It's just like these trans. Ugh, like. But also, like it. her definition of of woman is inherently incorrect because not all women like mass like uh menstruate like that's not a thing. Like some women have picos. Some women have IUDs. Some people have eating disorders. Like. Your definition, or menopause, your definition is not... Well, and some some Jews aren't money goblins also, so there's that. <laughs> that's my favorite That's my favorite J.K. Rowling moment, <laughs> which Chris Columbus memorialized by putting a giant star of David on the floor of the bank, just in case, just in case old J.K. was being a little too subtle with you about who the money goblins are. <laughs> I, uh, I'll be honest, I haven't this watched the first bunch. Harry Potter movie since, I think, 2006, uh, and I did not remember that. Yeah. I watched up until like that little riding stick game or whatever. And I was like, I'm good on this shit. <laughs> I'm, I'm very glad like we support trans lives on this side. But yep. God damn. Like, it's, it's just so weird. Like, cause my, my only thing with her is someone who just seen it from afar. Basically Harry Potter fans, like Game of Thrones fans. It's like people who be riding and dying for the shit. But George R. R. Martin, we don't even know if he's problematic at all or not. Like he just let the work speak for itself. He doesn't yeah. he's not gonna finish the last books, or whatever. He just he goes about his thing. But this lady, she's off the top rope with this shit, man. This shit is funny. Well, the other thing that's kinda 
the worst is that both of her pen names are specifically designed to sound more masculine. So, like, I don't know who you're trying to fool, J.K. Rowling. I, I'm glad that gender applies to everyone else. Who's the J.K. we support? Simmons. Yeah, we stand sure. in this house. We stand J.K. Simmons. Um, Happy Pride Month, folks. Yeah. Okay. Speaking of pride, sex lies and videotape. Oh my God, I did not <laughs> expect to love this movie as much as I did. <laughs> I did not either. <laughs> had you guys not had you guys not seen it before this week? Nope. My relationship with this movie is growing up. It was just something that I was just a kid seeing this cool ass movie title, but I legit don't ever remember it being on cable long enough to actually catch it anywhere. So I, I never watched this movie. And I was someone who was big on like the um, Cinemax and like HBO and like Showtime of like the mid to late 90s and early 2000s. But I, I legit never caught this movie. This is the first time I ever watched it. Yeah. I saw it in a movie theater the week it came out because old, and it was a it was a revolutionary film in terms of uh, independent movies, and you know none of those people were. Really, Spader was kind of not really a star; he was a supporting actor in mm-hmm. Rat Pack movies, and uh, it was kind of his coming out as a movie star, uh, and it kind of showed you what you could do with three cents. Yeah. Again, <laughs> Making a movie mostly one guy's living room while he jerks off. So that's kind of a fascinating uh, idea. There's like three locations or four locations in the whole movie. And three of them could theoretically be in the same house. Yeah, I think think various bedrooms are redresses of the other bedrooms. I I think that's one room with a different potted plant in it. Well, they uh, shoot the living room in their, like, the married couple's house from a yeah. different angle, but it has the exact same door as the sister's house. So they I'm pretty sure they just... Suburbs. Anyway, so it's not a not a problem. My journey with this movie started with realizing it's not available to rent anywhere right now. Oh. <laughs> you can only buy it for $14. Which is really surprising, but... I mean, it is they... surprising. I mean, they took off, like, Paris is Burning on Netflix, so you can't even stream that anywhere. So we're not looking very sex positive in the streaming era. <laughs> yeah, but I was like, all right, like, I was getting ready to watch it on Saturday night, and I was like, I'm I'm not paying $14 for this. I'm sorry. Like, I'm sure you're, you're worth $14 movie, and now I know that you are, but I'm poor. Podcast does not <laughs> rake in a lot of money, and I am unemployed right now, so... Yeah, I mean, it's kind of weird, like $14 for a 30-year-old movie that you, you haven't even really thought about until, like, last week is kind of kind yeah. of a tricky proposition, so I understand where um, I'm coming from with that. That said, I, uh, like, grabbed a blanket and watched it off of my computer on Sunday afternoon, and I was, like, leaning forward the whole time. I was super into this movie. Well, first of all, I feel like this movie has a lot of, like, things that I started to then notice in other, in the other Soderbergh movies that I watched over the last day. (laughs) Yeah, I watched four movies in 24 hours. Oh, that's, that's pretty big. (laughs) Especially in her Brockovich, goddamn. (laughs) And, uh, also an episode of Stargirl, so, you know, come at me scrub lords anyway so i was like all in on this movie in a way that i really didn't i didn't know like i read the description and i was like oh god this is just gonna be real weird and slow isn't it and like it kind of was but everyone is so fucking charming yeah like even james spader who initially i was like uh uh, mm, mm, mm." hold on why was i mean Spader, he's in all these different sex movies, so something about 80s, early I have 90s only Spader. seen him 
in Age of Ultron, I'm pretty sure. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was looking through his IMDb. Man's had like, kind of a bigger career than that. Yeah, I know, but apparently mostly, it just completely missed my purview. Mostly playing charming weirdos. Before this movie, it was always douchey weirdos. <laughs> and then it became charming douchey weirdos, and that's kind of his brand. Yeah. It's kind of like a, a different, a variation of what Goldblum does, of twitchy weirdo with a lot of ticks. Okay, I take it back. He was in Lincoln, and I did see Lincoln. Yeah, but he had like a microscopic part in that, if I remember correctly. I've definitely like seen him in a couple things, but I don't think I ever was like, ah, yes, James Spader. And he was so- on The Office for a season. Yeah, yeah he that, also was on his, uh, uh, California or something. Robert California, yeah. Yeah. He's also on Boston Legal and The Blacklist, both of yeah. which have kind of been things that have existed in my purview, but not like things I ever really sat down and watched. Boston Legal was really funny. They premiered the characters of him and William Shatner on The Practice, and the they as soon as they put those two guys in a scene together, they're literally two actors in every scene they play together who can do the weirder line reading. Like it's yes. a competition. Oh, you're going to only... raise your voice in the middle of the sentence. I'm going to raise my voice at the end of the sentence and none of it's going to make sense. And it's completely random. And watching two guys just kind of fuck around with each other endlessly. They did like three, how many, three, four seasons of Boston yeah. Legal trying to out weird act each other. And that was literally the show was unwatchable aside from that. Uh, yeah, no, they were both like competing to eat like chew as much scenery yeah. as they could like i, I definitely like, feel that get to that chair. i think i'll i'll work that down right now but yeah and spader is well cast in sex lies and videotapes i think yeah. the whole movie is well cast so david what was sort of like the the kind of the zeitgeist like you talked a little bit about it before but sure. what was kind of like the the actual buzz around the movie sure. when it came out like there just you- hadn't been really a movie like that i mean john sales was making super cheap movies for adults he had made a movie called uh return of the Secaucus seven which kind of got ripped off by the big chill but that was pretty much it for independent film there weren't a lot of guys out there making movies like this and uh this one did really well i, I may be remembering this wrong i feel like this is one of the first big sundance movies that got made a lot of money you know that someone paid a lot of money for at sundance and then released it in movie theaters because the sundance the, the palm door too didn't it yeah, yeah. that's Right. But yeah, it was this micro budget thing that just weirdly hit at exactly the right moment. And uh, and everybody really loved it. And it launched Soderbergh's career. And then he made an unwatchable sophomore movie called Kafka, uh, which is absolutely like a film student's idea of what I would do if they gave me all the money in the world. And it's just <laughs> it's garbage. I mean, and it's like it's right up my alley and it's it's so bad and then he made a heist movie called the underneath with peter gallagher that's actually pretty good mm. but he kind of drifted and then he made he went nuts and made a movie called schizopolis which he stars in. whoa that sounds terrible he's also stars uh, in. uncredited as the director of that he yeah. was able to uh remove his name from the director credit of that one yeah but uh, he's had a very interesting career, and then Out of Sight is the rebound movie, mm-hmm. and then after that, he's you know pretty much golden. But you know the thing I admire about him is he never really stops experimenting, and he never stops trying to make different and interesting movies, except for the fact that he's made 
three Oceans movies. Like the sequels or yeah. I just want to show my rich friends in beautiful places movies like and yeah. have fun. Like that's more or less. Like I also yeah. straight up forgot he did Magic Mike until I was like right? going through and I was like, can we watch Magic Mike? And Mark was like, no. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> no, I don't really look, feel like looking I at penises mean... right now. But speaking of looking at penises, I'm looking at I'm looking at sex lives right now, and Spade is just ass naked in the yep. living room, running hey. back to the tapes. Can't so. complain. I have not seen a man in a long time. <laughs> Quarantine's been, I would say, hard, but that is not correct. It has oh. been difficult. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah. Into there, by the way. Yeah, go ahead. Add a boing. I know you want to. <laughs> in more ways than one. A cacophony of boinging. But yeah. But yeah so- so it, it made a big splash, not to be continually talking about Spader's ass, but it made a big splash at the time, and uh, people dug it, and like Clerks and like Reservoir Dogs, it's one of those movies everybody went, hey, I could do that, and tried to sort of imitate it, and no one could, and all those movies are terrible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. so there's that. You know, I can put four actors in a room and make something great. Turns out you can't. Would this movie have been better cast with anyone else? Because I think everyone is actually pretty spectacular in this movie. I think even Cynthia, I feel like she's probably, if you're just looking at the script, she's probably like underrated. But I think like for everything that she does, as far as like her being the woman who actually owns her sexuality and is not afraid to fuck who she wants, even if it's, you know, her her sister's husband. But she's actually sort of in control of her own, like, autonomy. Do you think anyone could have been better in any of these roles? I mean, honestly, I think it's perfectly cast. It's, uh, Laura San Giacomo is great in that part. The thing that's impressive about it, actually, and this is the funny thing about how actors' careers evolved, Andy McDowell was famously a terrible actress who was never going to work again when this movie was made. She had done a Tarzan movie. Oh my uh, God, I remember that. Greystoke, made by an Academy Award-winning director. It's also kind of terrible. She plays Jane. She is so bad that she is dubbed by Glenn Close. Like, Mm -hmm. literally all of her dialogue in Tarzan is Glenn Close dubbing her. That's how disastrous she was in the part. And it's just the, the magic of the right script and the right director he somehow got her to be kind of great. Partially it's because I think she is a shy, uptight Southern girl. So movies are the opposite of stage plays in that you cast people in movies mostly for their essential nature because the camera can see your essential nature, basically. Mm -hmm. And if you do that right, you can kind of do no wrong on screen. But you put the wrong person in the wrong role and you're doomed and no amount of directing, writing and camera work can get you out of that. Her Andy McDowell in this movie reminds me of Jessica Lange in All That Jazz, because once again, she had been in King Kong. I have never read reviews of a movie that were so sure an actress would never work again mm. as the reviews of King Kong. They're all like, this movie is terrible, but you know what's really terrible is Jessica Lange. But, you know, <laughs> Fosse was having an affair with her, and he's like, you know what she can play is a weird-ass goddess character who maybe not real. Jessica Lange can play that. The other thing that happens with actors, I think, over time, and you see this a lot with television actors who are terrible, you spend a couple hundred hours on a soundstage, eventually you learn shit and you become good and possibly even great. No one would deny that Jessica Lange is a great actress now. 
<laughs> but she was not that in 1976. And yeah, same with yeah. Andy McDowell. She's amazing in this movie, I think. She really nails it. No one saw that coming before this movie was made. I was just looking through her IMDb because I was trying to remember, like, I felt like I knew her face and I couldn't remember well, from what. Well, uh, she was yep. in Muppets from Space, which yeah. was just a, a staple in my household growing up. But you never seen Groundhog Day, though, right? No. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a child. We've been over this. <laughs> that's a, yeah, that's a huge movie for her. That and Four Weddings and a Funeral. Funeral, yeah. Those are her movie star period movies when she was headlining pictures. But all that comes out of this movie. I've got a lot of problems. And they belong to me. You think they're yours, but they're not. Everybody that walks in that door becomes part of your problem. Anybody that comes in contact with you. I didn't want to be part of your problem, but I am. I'm leaving my husband. And maybe I would have anyway. But the fact is that I'm doing it now. And part of it is because of you. You've had an effect on my life. She was on a rocket to dinner theater in, you know... Pittsburgh when this movie was made. Oh God, I'm just looking at the the poster for Greystoke and I just oh God. <laughs> the the pity of it is there is a good Tarzan is actually a great novel and there is a good high toned movie in it. He tried too hard to cut out all the stuff that makes a Tarzan movie and make only the movie about British manners, which <clears throat> is bad and nobody cares. But yeah, that was one of the more disappointing films because it was the guy who had just won an Oscar for um, Chariots of Fire. Directly. Oh, wow. And again, not the most exciting movie ever made and not one of the better Best Picture nominees. But, you know, it's a very common thing. I mean, it's exactly like Soderbergh with Kafka. A lot of directors, when they're successful and you say, what's your dream project? That movie is going to be terrible. Don't <laughs> give people their blank check money so easily. Yeah, sometimes you get to do the movie of your dreams, and there's a reason why it was something that seemed like it was a good te- idea for you when you were a teenager. We were talking about Avatar a couple of weeks ago, and I kind of feel like that is a, a, another great example of, of that. Yeah. And now, uh, starting in 2021, we're just going to get like one Avatar every other year for like 10 years, supposedly. It's, and I... <sighs> I don't think anyone has wanted... I don't think there's ever been a case of a sequel that people wanted less than Avatar <laughs> sequels. And I really hated Titanic, but I would be way more excited for a Titanic sequel. Like, oh, Titanic prequel for that. Uh, you need I, a prequel with, um, with Billy Zane and Rose. Please, I have a child! Oh like, my god. That's what you need. That's exactly what you need. Let, let Billy Zane chew more scenery. Yeah, um, no, Avatar, Avatar is that classic thing of, like, a teenage boy who's read John Carter of Mars like Star Wars, like that's the cheap ripoff of the great thing that you do when you're a teenager. And right. then you become an adult and you go, I can't make that. 
that's terrible and it's an obvious ripoff of other things. Also, but I forgot how other things has never bothered Jim Cameron very much. So. Yeah, that's that's true. I think I, I either didn't know because it came out when I was about 10 or 11 or I forgot how horny that movie is, too. It really does feel like a teenage boy movie because yeah. she's got tasteful side boob. Yes. Tasteful because, it, you know, she's nine foot tall blue alien woman and it can't. But she's an allegory for native people because this is Dances with Wolves and also Pocahontas, so it's got to yeah. be tasteful. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But for Sex Lies and Videotape, though, back to the original movie, Kat, how do you feel this movie actually handles how it actually talks about sex and sexuality? Because one of the parts of the review that I wrote for this movie on Letterbox, mm-hmm. I'm thinking about how in 30 years public consumption and dialogue around sex has changed and how it has not changed but the Cynthia's of the world there's always been an the duality of the sexually liberated and stagnant is a part of the human condition but in many ways there hasn't been a world to truly coexist how do you feel like this movie kind of handles sexuality I think it does an interesting job with it. I think it does a really nice job of kind of showing two points on the the sexuality spectrum. I did feel, and this might just have been my reading on it, that it, it was a little bit like either you like it or you hate it. And like, that's not, it's much more of a spectrum than that. Um, kind of other options exist outside of that. Right. I do also appreciate though that like Andy McDowell was pretty much like, yeah, this is... Uh. This is not really for me. And no one in the movie was like, well, clearly you like haven't been fucked properly because like that is a trope that makes me want to stick my head through a plate glass window. So I I do appreciate that it kind of sidestepped that in a way that I thought was very surprisingly understanding, I guess. I mean, she's with a husband that's clearly inattentive. And it's so funny you say like everyone in this movie is charming. This guy is definitely beguiling, but... He definitely comes off as a guy who has gotten laid plenty of times but does not actually know how to please women. Oh, yeah, no, he's got no idea. And I, I get the sense that he's probably a quick shot, too, if I had to wager. <laughs> okay. Well, if you, if you look at the way that the sex scene between him and Laura San Giacomo is filmed, mm-hmm. not to get very technical or graphic, but she's sort of doing all the work the to work. get off. He's yeah. lying on his back. And she's like, I know how to work this equipment, even if he doesn't, to get myself there. And of course, she's also, we know she's dreaming of James Spader, not of Eyebrows McGinty, who she's lying on. So, uh, and I, you know, Peter Gallagher is great. I love, he's great in roles that like that, because I've always said he looks like if you did a cartoon of a handsome man. Not yeah. an actual handsome man. A handsome man wouldn't look that ridiculous. But like, if you drew... With a thick magic marker, because those eyebrows, man. If you oh, do that, you would end up with a child's drawing of a very handsome man. And that's what he looks like. And I think it's funny to use him that way as sort of like a signpost that says, handsome man. Yeah. That- well, there was a moment when he put those the glasses on that he has like at the end of the movie. And I was like wait, is he attractive? I can't tell. Like, I was like <laughs> squinting at the screen like, wait a minute. He's like attractive enough. Like he, like he dresses good just enough. It's funny. Like in the end of the movie, he got his best fit off when he was getting fired and lost everything. Yeah. Like that. That I'm not gonna lie. The the bow tie tan jacket combo that was actually pretty (laughs) hidden. But his life had been complete shit at that moment. So he used his you know fashion sense and it was channeled by his lack of sexual uh, getting off. (laughs) 
Yeah, right. no, he he definitely strikes me as one of those trust fund people that you would like meet at a party though, and kind of be like, uh, my self esteem is not low enough to go home and be disappointed by you. Right. Like that was very <laughs> much my my take on him. I also think that I kind of appreciated that it shows a couple of different reactions to James Spader's kind of desire and how he gets off. Some of it is you know, but some of it is oh cool and some of it's kind of in the middle well no it's like very like a lot of people are very dismissive of what he is into and it kind of tells on them a bit too yeah Uh, so i i thought that was a, a very strong kind of there's like a strong amount of understanding and kind of kindness extended towards people that might be different than you in in terms of what what gets you off and i feel like that's very especially for what 1989 yeah, yeah. Pretty, pretty progressive. No, and Which, definitely ahead of it, what Spader is into, if you think about webcams and the 21st century, he's only way fans. ahead of his time. He, he, he was the original OnlyFans. <laughs> he, he, is, he is, yeah, right? He is way ahead of his time with that shit. The uh, old OnlyFans. Yeah, exactly. Back when it was high eight. But, I mean, I feel like the dichotomy of the two sisters is a little simplistic. It's a little bad girl, good girl. Yeah. And, that's tiresome, and ultimately Andy McDevitt, the good girl, still gets the good guy in the end. I mean, kind of. Yeah, no, it's, it's. I mean, it's more complicated than that. I feel like they both, like, actually kind of learn something, even if it's just yeah. about themselves or each other, which I kind of valued. But the, also there were a couple moments where I was like, I get it, she's a prude, I get it, she's a whore, can we talk about something else? It has a little bit of a case of men writing women sometimes, yeah. but not nearly as bad as I thought it might be. And not nearly as bad as uh, Behind the Candelabra's straight writing queer, which I know yeah. is not on our syllabus for this week, but I watched in a blind panic starting at one yesterday morning. <laughs> that was not a good idea. <laughs> I, hey, watching Michael Douglas get railed while doing cocaine is quite a way to spend a Sunday evening. Well, it, it, it's how uh, Catherine Zeta-Jones is spending her Sunday evening. So, you know, hey. that poor woman. You and Catherine are just are together on that. I mean, she's got much better legs than me, so if we can have anything in common, I'll take it. And just kind of totality of this movie, how does this movie actually stack up against the rest of Soderbergh's career? Because for me, I've watched a decent amount of Soderbergh, but I haven't watched, like, every Soderbergh film. So, David, how does this movie kind of compare to, like, the rest? Like, would you say this is kind of, like, the top tier what Soderbergh can do in filmmaking? No, I I think he's he's improved enormously since this. It's, like, the greatest student film ever made. I mean, and I say that in the nicest possible way. It's got humble aspirations and it hits them and it hits them perfectly well and it is exactly what it intends to be there isn't really a false note in it the camera's in the right place like he he knew the basics of filmmaking right off the bat and i think he's only improved since then and i as far as american filmmakers go or no i should say north american filmmakers go it's hard to think of another director that has as eclectic a filmography as he does i would say cronenberg is maybe the only other one who like every time you're like oh that's what you wanted okay we're making mm. you're doing that this time you're you're making a you know and he doesn't have cronenberg's early career where it's all horror movies for a dozen movies in a row before he gets the you know the power and ability to do whatever movie he wants to do next i would say though for all that he has experimented and that not all experiments are 
successful. I mean, without having his entire filmography in, t- in front of me, I'd say it, it might still fall in his top 10 of mm. uh, the movies he ever made. But it's definitely a very talented director's writer's first movie. Cat, what are your final thoughts on Sex, Lies, and Videotape? I liked it a lot more than I thought I would. Uh, I'm really glad that I spent time with it, and I'm really glad that it was so character-driven because that makes it not feel like you're doing more with less, even though that's what it is. Yeah. Also, like, I'm not, I'm not super into blonde guys, but if this was 1988, I would call David Spader back. Is Spader hot for this time, or just hot? Because I don't, <laughs> like, on the duality scale, of doable scale of this movie, I can see why Andy McDowell would have left her terrible marriage for James Spader. But I don't know if I was just a gal running somewhere in, in Baton Rouge, I'd be, like, trying to throw Spader the cooch. I don't know. I mean, I I feel like not just like based on that, like, oh, like you look at him, but like if you were to line up every guy I ever dated end to end, you would notice no physical similarities at all. You would notice that they're fairly charismatic. And I think that he had, even though it's not as like outward as we might think of as charismatic, he's definitely got like a magnetism to him that I probably would be interested in. I watch you eat, you know, I watch you speak. Watch you move, and I, uh, I see somebody who is extremely aware of people looking at you. You know, my therapist. You're in therapy? Aren't you? No, I, no, I'm not. <laughs> I was a miserable failure in therapy. <laughs> so you don't believe in therapy? No, I, I, yeah, I... I believe in it for some people. I, I don't know. It was, you know, silly for me. I was confused going in, and so I just I formed my own theory that you should never take advice from someone that doesn't know you intimately. Oh well, I I I know my therapist intimately. You've had sex with your therapist. No. No, no. Oh, no, that's I'm, I'm, that's what I meant. Someone who you've, you've had sex with. Uh, I think it's the eyes, man. It's the eye, eyebrow. He's got, he's got real soulful eyes. Like, he doesn't Unlike, blink when he looks at you. Like it's, And then there's Peter Gallagher that's just, like, eyebrows. Only eyebrows. This is, this is not a visual medium. I yeah. know. I know. Yeah, I gave this on my letterbox. Uh, I gave it a four and a half. I gave it four, I think. David, would you give this one a, a zero out of five scar? I think between I think four and four and a half are are reasonable. That's always the tricky thing because are you review? I never know how people do this. Are you reserving five for the greatest movies ever made, or are you reserving five for the best possible version of this movie? We talked about that last week with Cat. So I I suggested that Cat. For her five-star rating, that's what she should save it for. She thinks this is the apex of what that genre could do. That should be her five-star. For me personally, like, if I just think, if I leave watching this movie and I say, this is probably one of the best pieces of film I've seen, regardless if it's a documentary or a movie or a comedy or whatever, like, if I leave the movie thing in that way, like, I'll I'll just give it a five-star. I think Portrait of Laving on Fire, like, that's, like, a five-star movie in my book. And it's a five-star movie in mine, too, but for kind of different reasons. Yeah. 
<laughs> so yeah, it, this shit's all subjective. It, I like two star movies. Like give sure. me a give me Snow Day starring Cuba Gooding Jr. <laughs> <laughs> I've watched the you know what room I'm, you know what I'm more saying, times than I care to like, admit. I think you have to judge a movie on its ambitions. You know what I mean? Like, you mm-hmm. can't expect this to be Lawrence of Arabia. It's four people in a living room. As yep. four people in a living room talking about sex go, I would give it four and a half stars. There's very little room for improvement in this movie with these ambitions in this genre. So, David, whenever you, whenever you are just watching movie just for any purpose like leisure nostalgia mm-hmm. whatever what are things that you actually look for in the actual filmmaking are you looking at it from are you looking at it more from a technical aspect or just a fan aspect like no i i always approach movies first as a as a fan i always say the best movies create a trance state they capture you and they capture your attention that's super hard to do at home we mm-hmm. my wife and i have something that we literally call movie protocol which is the lights are off the phones are away <laughs> We're not getting up. We'll hit pause to go to the bathroom because that's the one advantage of watching a movie at home. But you kind of have to give yourself over to the experience completely because some of the best movies have super frustrating or boring first hours because they're trying to set you up for something later. And on television, you don't have the you don't have the patience for that. You got enough of this bullshit. So it's hard to do that. But in the first time I see any movie, I am desperate to be put into that trans state and to be brought into the movie and forget about everything else. And when a movie is bad, then you spend all your time going, you know, I can see the boom. I had, yeah. <laughs> I had seven pages of notes for uh, the Joker movie starring Joaquin Phoenix because I was so fucking not engaged. That's seven too much. <laughs> and uh, well, right. But I was literally writing notes just to keep myself engaged. Yeah. I was like, I gotta, I gotta pay attention to something or I'm going to fall asleep. Like, yeah. I mean, you didn't, you weren't captivated by the psycho fantasy of white men killing people <laughs> that didn't grab you. I've seen Taxi Driver and King of Comedy, and I don't need to see a mashup of those right? two at all. Uh, so, as a psychologist, I and as someone who's getting a psychology degree, I feel very strongly that Todd Phillips does not understand this and does not even try to. Yeah. And if you're going to make a movie that's about mental health in that way, you can't have an, a vague diagnosis. No one yeah. makes that movie knows what's wrong, actually wrong with the character. Yeah. No one sat down with a psychiatrist and went, or a psychologist and went, what syndrome is this? What does this guy have? What would mm-hmm. the course of treatment be? How would this guy deal in society? It's just a fantasy. It's a fantasy. It's it's a white boy nobody understands me fantasy, you know. Oh, I'm sorry. Do you mean a lone wolf? Yeah. As as the media likes to call it. Exactly. And I just I don't have room in my life for that. (laughs) I I had the opportunity to cover that for Nerd Caliber. And I remember reading my review and just going, I don't know that I should put my name on this because like the nerd boys, they will come for me. Yeah. Yeah. And I am scurred. My daddy's podcast is called Hyphenation. It's the world's greatest podcast. Obama proofed. On hyphenation, my daddy talks about all kinds of cool things. And sometimes I'm on the podcast too. Sometimes he has his friend Marcus on. Sometimes he stays up really late and he's tired the next day. But it's worth it. But he loves his podcast and I love his podcast. So I really want you to listen to hyphenation. So daddy doesn't get sad. He really doesn't get sad though because he has me. Oh wait, please listen to hyphenation. Thanks, y'all. I 
love the podcast, so please, please, please try to join. But if you know it. Speaking of being scared, Aaron Brockovich. You are <laughs> nailing the transitions tonight. Being scared of your water. It's Ugh. oh my god, yeah. Like it's so funny. Uh David said, you know, and I, I kind of subscribed to that too. Like if it's a new movie, you know, putting the phone down, not on social media, really trying to focus on it. But god damn, this that was a task with this movie. Like, I, I failed a couple of times, I'm not gonna lie. I don't think it was necessarily a bad movie. I wouldn't say it's bad at all, but god damn it was long. That was long. Maybe that fucking John Travolta movie that I can never remember the name of, where he's also like a lawyer, like a simple action or a yeah action or something. That's the other drinking water small community in Pennsylvania, I think. Yeah, yeah. Because the whole time it's got some title like that. The whole time I was just thinking about that movie and I felt kind of bad. But like, this was also my first time seeing this movie. And the only place I knew it from before this, and this is so bad, and I'm like a little embarrassed, honestly, is that it's referenced in the song that the Lonely Island did with Michael Bolton about Captain Jack Sparrow real quick. Like it's name checked in that song. That's funny. And I was like, that doesn't sound like a real thing. And then I was like, oh, it's it's a real movie, and it's on this man's IMDb. Can we watch that? <laughs> it's a very, very aggressively middle-brow movie. It's, you know, Soderbergh doesn't do anything. And there's no interesting filmmaking in it. It's as basic as it could possibly be. It's meant to make a political point and be entertaining at the same time. And I think it pulls that off. I liked it the first time I saw it a trillion years ago. I have never, and I doubt I will, for the rest of my life, I don't think I will wake up any morning and go, I should watch Aaron Brockovich again. Like, nothing that I could possibly ever spend more time on. You know, some movies are richer experiences the number of times you see them. I don't see any reason to go back to that one. Yeah, the the well. The well, no pun intended, has been tapped. Yeah. Like, this yeah. is a, so thinking of like even how we rate movies, I would give Aaron Brockovich a three and a half. Like, a movie that I would say it's technically good. Like, I think the acting from every actor, except, you know, Aaron Eckhart's, you know, wig, terrible cyber combination. <laughs> It's actually, it it was a choice, and they made the wrong choice. (laughs) Like I think the acting is great in a sense. Like I think Julia Roberts, she she was like, I'm just gonna be Michael Jordan in this. So give me the ball, I'll be Michael Jordan. I'll say fuck a hundred times, and it'll be interesting. I'll save you know hundreds of lives and get the money. Even like the side characters, like the people that were affected, like there were actually good acting bits in that part. Yeah. But man, this movie is it's it's a hard watch this is another movie like sex lies and videotape that was kind of in the consciousness of people it was just everywhere it's out there if you knew julia roberts was like you knew like aaron brockovich but i was young at the time so i never had like any interest in watching it and looking back at it i can see why it wasn't necessarily run on cable because if you cut out all the time julia roberts says fuck the movie's extremely less interesting Mm -hmm. and if you watch it just on like tbs or tnt it's a three, three and a half hour commitment, which a lot of people definitely aren't trying to do for that movie. Yeah. It's it's a good movie, but if they could have trimmed it by like 40 yeah. minutes, it probably would have been like Julia Roberts' like best performance probably. Let's be honest here. $20 million is more money than these people have ever dreamed of. 
Oh, see, now that pisses me off. First of all, since the demur, we have more than 400 plaintiffs, and let's be honest, we all know there are more out there. They may not be the most sophisticated people, but they do know how to divide, and $20 million isn't shit when you split it between them. Aaron. Second of all, these people don't dream about being rich. They dream about being able to watch their kids swim in a pool without worrying that they'll have to have a hysterectomy at the age of 20 like Rosa Diaz, a client of ours, or have their spine deteriorate like Stan Bloom, another client of ours. So before you come back here with another lame-ass offer, I want you to think real hard about what your spine is worth, Mr. Walker, or what you might expect someone to pay you for your uterus, Miss Sanchez. Then you take out your calculator and you multiply that number by 100. Anything less than that is a waste of our time. I, I appreciate the message that it's trying to do where it's like, I guess, kind of good can come from anywhere and, and from anyone, you know, and that's fine. Great. But it needed like a, a point one a like it can't it couldn't just bang that gong the whole time because halfway through I was like, let me guess, this person has a pole up her ass. The person with the pole up the ass is going to assume that Aaron Brockovich is an idiot. Aaron's going to prove her wrong. Great. Next. I mean, that's almost the same point of Pretty Woman. So... Yeah. You know, it's not, it's not particularly new ground for Julia Roberts. She kind uh, of also does that in Notting Hill. Yeah. Where everyone thinks she's, like, shallow and horrible and turns out she's actually, like, very well-read and intelligent. Like, it's it's a different kind of dressing for the same change, yeah. I guess. And when there was about 45 minutes of this movie left, I kind of was seriously like, can I stop right. and not finish it? Well, there's and... not a lot of suspense about how it's going to turn out. You know, it's yeah. not the kind of movie where she's going to lose big and we're going we're gonna to learn a lesson about how the world works from that. It's not that movie. You know, Albert Finney is great in it. Yes. He, that's yeah, the kind of party really playing his sleep. You know, lovable old grouch. You know. And that's the, you know, that's, I always say it's the power of movie stars is you plug them into a thing like this and it enlivens pretty deadly material. But again, it's not Soderbergh. And I think wisely he did not make it a very stylish or use very stylistic filmmaking because he he was really more trying to serve the political point than anything else i feel like the creators of the big short saw aaron brockovich and said no we can't do this we gotta do something more interesting than this and they did (laughs) yeah no i think so I also felt, and I don't know if this is his choice as director or, like, the person that he chose to be the cinematographer for this movie, but there were a couple of times where I was like, we get it, the skirt is short and tight. Do the titties you have are nice. any other I, commentary here at all? No? Right. You know that he, uh, in the present day, he has shot his own, almost all of his own movies. I think this is before that. Yeah, but That's if you why see I wasn't recent, sure. If you see his recent movies, Peter Andrews is his middle name and his mother's maiden name, I think. The DP of almost yeah. all of his movies. No, I, uh, this was shot by a real human being who isn't him. Yeah. It was shot I, by Ed Lockman, who's actually pretty great. Uh, I just felt like there was a lot of, yeah. maybe, frankly, too much focus on what she was wearing, how it looked on her. And, like, I get that, but once it's explicitly brought up by Albert Finney and then again by one of the women in the office, there's kind of a point where either it's going to change and by focusing on her butt you assume that we are seeing the change or it's not going <laughs> to change, in which case, like, okay, 
Maybe that's not as much of an issue if you're a dude, but as a woman, I don't know. I don't know how I would feel with a camera that close to my butt every time I was trying to walk somewhere. Well, I mean, remember that at this point in her career, Julia Roberts is all powerful. So Julia Roberts is super down with every shot of her butt in this movie. There is not a shot of her butt in this movie that Julia Roberts didn't sign a check to make sure it happened. So, you know, I mean, hey, if she's into it, that's fine. But. I'm just saying, this isn't some starlet getting taken advantage of. (laughs) At the time this movie gets made, she's like literally the most powerful woman in Hollywood. Is the only lesson in this movie is big corporations are bad and you shouldn't doubt women? Is that the only lesson in this movie? And also, I I think it's worth mentioning since we talked about what I just said about Julia Roberts. Mm -hmm. In Soderbergh's career, this isn't a Steven Soderbergh movie. This is a movie where Julia Roberts wanted to make Aaron Brockovich. And she picked up the phone and called Steven Soderbergh and said, you're the best director in the world. Please make this movie for me. And he said, what kind of idiot would say no to Julia Roberts movie in 2000? I think I will say yes and make this TV movie about how bad chemical companies are. Uh, and make a giant paycheck and have my big studio card stamped a few times. And now I can make whatever the hell I want. Uh, So I'm just saying, like, Sex, Lies, and Videotape is a script he wrote. It's total indie. It's totally his deal. And this is a thing where he is absolutely the most hired of hired guns. And funny thing, I mentioned that we shouldn't compare Sex, Lies, and Videotape to, of all things, Lawrence of Arabia. Aaron Brockovich, edited by Ann Coates, the editor of Lawrence of Arabia. Not a woman who thought a movie could be too long. So Yeah, no. You know. <sighs> yeah. Gosh, okay. Yeah, so, no, fair. <laughs> that's just kind of a funny, you know, and, and also Soderbergh for the last 20 years has also edited most of his own movies under a fake name. So oh, wow. This, oh, is damn ab- it. this is absolutely, you know, the Coen brothers do that too. I know. Rod- oh, really? Well, Yeah, sure. Roderick Janes, who's edited their last 20, 30 movies, is the Coen brothers. And he gets nominated for Academy Awards a lot. And I always wonder, how are you going to handle it when Roderick James wins an Oscar? Is it going to be like Bushimi wearing a beret with a monocle? Like, I mean, how are they going to deal with a fictional character winning an, uh, winning an Oscar? My hope is that it is the two Coen brothers in a trench coat with a hat. Yeah. Yeah. The, the short one has to get on the other's shoulders. Shoulder. Yeah. That no, would be that... a, tall, a tall, tall dude. But yeah. That's my hope for this. Yeah, we kind of spent like 20 minutes kind of shitting on, well, not really shitting on Aaron Brockovich, but you know, politely putting into the toilet. We're gonna press the plunger. Mm-hmm. Is there anything though that we can kind of extrapolate as far as like, if you watch this movie, this is a great piece of X to take away from? Because the only thing I can really point to is the acting. Like, if you're an expiring act actor. Like, there are many parts, whether big or small, that you can look to and say, you know, that's pretty good dramatic. Like, that's pretty good comedy. Like, that's good banter that they have. Like, that's good cutting each other. Like, other than that, I can't really take away anything from this movie. Kat, is there anything from this movie that you can take away from that you can say, I'm glad I watched this movie? Fuck corporations, man. That's pretty much all I got. Hey, I'll be honest. I, mean, I, I, mean, I uh... that's, that's not a bad lesson. <laughs> I tried really hard to engage with this movie beyond, like, wow, that's some good acting I'm seeing. And, like, I I did not quite click with it, even though I really wanted to. I don't think there's anything bad about it. It's not poorly done, but nothing about it at any point really grabbed me. 
David, what are your final thoughts on well, Markovich? If you, uh, as I said, if you put it in the spectrum of Soderbergh's career, it's it's just not his movie in any significant way. Yeah. Uh, it's it shows though he what he wanted to demonstrate with it, and I think what he did demonstrate with it is, I'm sure he brought it in on time, on budget. The camera's always <laughs> in the no, and I, you know, this is this sounds like damning with faint praise, but a lot of people aren't capable of making a movie where the camera's always in the right place, where all the performances are good, where the story makes sense beginning, middle, and end. Like it's Shout it to is, J.J. Abrams. Yeah, it is it is uh, it is uh storytelling 101 and it is completely successful on that level and that's really I think all he was after here was mm-hmm. making a competent and look he I'm pretty sure he got nominated for an Oscar for it. And you know it it's it's a common thing for directors to and actors and film everyone in filmmaking gets Oscar nominations for probably their most mediocre work and this is a perfectly good example of that. His yeah. lead Look, I'm looking at his IMDb page right now. I'm like, this is easily the least Steven Soderbergh of any Steven Soderbergh movie. She Everything. won Best Actress. Yeah. I would say that's probably fair. Who, who else was nominated that year? Best Actress. She's up against uh, Joan Allen, Juliette Binot. Oh, for Chocolat, which is not a great movie, but uh, she gives a great performance She's in it. Yeah. Ellen Burstyn and Laura Linney. Okay. Wow, Chocolat was like trying to win all the Oscars. It's like nominated in like 18 categories. Yeah, that was kind of big in the consciousness back then too. I I only saw it for the first time like three weeks ago. Oh, don't worry, I never seen it. It was cute. <laughs> Can't complain. It was free on HBO. Great way to kill an afternoon. <laughs> it is, you know, all puns about the title notwithstanding. It is a sweet little movie. It's not of yeah. any consequence. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I feel like we could have a conversation about Johnny Depp playing a gypsy if we really wanted to. But I'm <laughs> I not mean, he sure. played a Native American. Let, let him run yeah. the rainbow. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I I don't think I was ever as sad as I was when I found out that Tonto is like meant to be a play off of the Spanish word for idiot. Oh, and I was oh. like, you couldn't even like pick a Native language? Why? Why the Lone Ranger? Why? I mean, why anything? Money. White money. people. Well, touche. I see your money. I raise you white people. Look, I don't have much time, all right? So let me just say something real quick. My name is EG, and I am the host of two shows that are part of the Hyphen Podcast Group. The first show is called Catch the Show. It's a show where I talk about music-related news and pop culture, upcoming tours that you may want to catch shows of, and I tell you about a show that I call because it's the number one concert review podcast in the world, and I've reviewed shows from Beyonce to Kendrick Lamar to even the Backstreet Boys. So yeah, that's Catch the Show. The other show is called The Underground Monster. Slightly different kind of show, but still music-related. It's where I cover basically underground independent hip-hop, horrorcore and the juggalo culture so yeah if you're interested in either one go to hyphenpodcastgroup.com and or go to your favorite podcast platform and just search for them and hit that subscribe button okay got that cool now let's get you back to the show you were originally listening to let's bring it into the funnest movie of the night 
Ocean's Eleven, a movie that I used to religiously watch on my PlayStation 2 before I had a personal DVD player. (laughs) (laughs) David, what are your thoughts back then for Ocean's Eleven and kind of how are they matured over time or they even changed I, I actually think i missed that one in the theaters and i don't know why i think the greatest thing that ever happened to the movie oceans 11 is when mark Wahlberg dropped out of it oh no whoa 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 we need this story who was he gonna play because it would have fucked Guess that would be up. matt damon but it could have been brad pitt both of those are disaster oh, choices whoa. from hell by the way i have i have a mark Wahlberg rule aside from the fact that i hate him and he's a white supremacist and he should fuck off well, but yeah. I refuse to see any movie in which he plays a character who has graduated high school. <laughs> you Here's... fucking make a movie where he plays an astronaut or a CIA agent, I am going to say, no, man, no. The CIA does not take Mark Wahlberg. NASA does not take Mark Wahlberg. There is no Mark Wahlberg in any white-collar job ever. But all that said, you know, there's a rule about remakes. You don't remake good movies. You remake bad movies that had great premises. And this is a perfect example of that. The original Ocean's Eleven is not particularly good. It's a very lazy, weird-ass piece of filmmaking that was clearly made by people a couple of hours in the afternoon at a time when they were sober. And then they went back to their drinking. The remake is not that at all. And I think, like Aaron Brockovich, I doubt very highly this project comes from Soderbergh. I guessing this is Clooney during his rise to be a giant, giant movie star, like Julia Roberts going, who's the best director in the world for this kind of thing? And he's coming off of Traffic, a three-hour-long movie about the drug trade. Yeah, uh, it was pretty decent. So he wanted to relax, clearly. Oh, yeah, that's a big He wanted pivot. to have a good time. He wanted to do 12-hour days and go home or go out drinking with the boys. He did not want to be in the desert in Mexico. So uh, he made this incredibly fun thing. And it's a giant improvement on the original. And it coasts entirely on the charm of its movie star leads. And I think this is the first one that he shot. He is the cinematographer on this movie. Yeah, also uh, just unrelated, but to circle back to your Mark Wahlberg point real quick, he's about to be in a remake of The Six Million Dollar Man. Six I'm, Million uh, Dollar Man. Like I said, man. playing an astronaut. I'm sad because I would totally watch a remake of The Six Million Dollar Man, but Mark Wahlberg is a white supremacist asshole. Get and, ready uh, to walk through those American flags and go to that the is, That is from someone who's from Boston. Like, I'm pretty sure when I was born, I had to like put a handprint on a contract that was like, never say anything bad about the Wahlberg. It's kind of the law of the land here. Him and Ben Affleck are off limits. What would have aged worse if Mark Warburg was in this movie or the big ass shot of Trump Tower in the background? George. <laughs> oh. Yes, it is sad that they don't that Trump isn't the villain in the movie and it's poor Andy Garcia. He's but, trying so uh, hard. Yeah. I was watching this movie and I was like, God, I just can't. I think Andy Garcia is a little too likable. He's a fucking sweetheart. He was in that, that Michelle Pfeiffer movie when she's like an alcoholic. That I was just a wanted to give him movie. a hug like the whole yeah. time. And I was like, I'm sorry, George Clooney. This also very charismatic man is about to do a bad thing to you. Like, it's not. The, tr- the tricky thing to me with all movies about love triangles and it's one of the you know it's what i call the casablanca rule if the other guy is garbage what the hell is wrong why do you want her back man yeah the fucking murderous psychopath and this movie has that problem 
Which yeah. the reason Casablanca is the greatest love triangle movie ever is even if you're Humphrey Bogart, you go, well, Victor Laszlo is really, he is so handsome. And he's, <laughs> he's a he's a star of the resistance. I mean, he is dreamy. And I'm just some fucking casino owner who happens to be a lot sexier than he is. But like, you can see her making that choice. Yeah. It's much that- harder. Like, I hate you because you're in jail. I think I will marry this casino owner. This other <laughs> even guy. When does, even when he does, you know, rent and hide, asshole. Like, you don't believe it. That's like, not yes. threatening at all. It's fucking Andy. It's Andy. Come on now. Yeah. I have complied with your every request. Would you agree? I would. Good. Because now I have one of my own. Run and hide, asshole. Run and hide. If you should be picked up next week buying a hundred thousand dollar sports car in Newport Beach, I am gonna be supremely disappointed because I want my people to find you. And when they do, rest assured, we're not gonna hand you over to the police. So my advice to you again is this run and hide. That is all that I ask. So at least they chose someone who was like charming and super good looking. So like, okay, maybe she saw past that. I... This movie also does have one of the greatest funny uh, lines in an end credit sequence. Mm. I don't know if you guys caught it. During the cast at the end, it says, and introducing Julia Roberts as Tess. Nice. As though it's her first movie ever. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Actually, even the DVD commentary, like I said, I ran this, I ran my PS2 into the ground watching DVDs, and this is one of them. The DVD commentary with Clooney and Pitt uh, and Andy Garcia, all three of them were like in the commentary, and I think Soderbergh may have been in it too. I don't remember, but I know the three of them were in it, and it was actually just as entertaining as the movie. But watching it now, what was your takeaways from this movie? I really liked it, but I think I liked it just because it's another movie where it's a bunch of charming people having a nice time. Yeah. Like, I know they're, like, doing a thing, but, like, they figure out how to do the thing. It doesn't ever seem like it's particularly difficult. It's just a movie about a bunch of charismatic people having a fine time. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's like eye candy movie. Like, that's yeah. kind of all yeah. it is. I have a theory about what filmmakers love heist movies because it's a heightened version of what we do. You come up with an objective, you make a plan, you put together a team of highly talented specialists, and then you go out in the world and you do the thing and you have fun doing it. And at the end, it's done. Mm-hmm. And you, you know, and it, things show up that surprise you and there are twists and turns and shit doesn't work out the way you expected it to. But mm-hmm. ultimately, I think filmmakers look at heist movies and go, it's like what we do. I think this is a inheritor of the kind of movie. The uh, It's a Paul Newman, Robert Redford movie. It's Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and it's The Sting. It's here are the two most handsome, charming guys in the world. We love them. They seem to have a wonderful friendship. And we're just going to hang out with them for a couple of hours. And we're going to meet some of their other friends. And who really cares what happens? Now, obviously, in Ocean's 12, they took that too much to heart (laughs) and didn't care. Mm -hmm. I think that's a perfectly fine genre of movie. And when you pull it off, it's universally beloved for, a, and this is one of those things. I think I said this cat, when you told me we were going to be talking about it, I'm like, I don't need to rewatch that. Cause I literally watch most of it. Every time I'm flipping channels and see the two of those guys, I'm like, eh, what worse things could happen in my life than I just spend the next hour and a half watching the rest of this movie. I've seen 300 times. I've seen it a countless number of times. Yeah. Like I've it. seen it. 
twice. <laughs> I think Kat is probably going to get cheated out of that multiple rewatching because it's not necessarily a movie that you need to put on. Like, like there's movies that you want to relive. Like, when I was even watching this in high school, just on my PS2, like, it was mostly because I was taking breaks from playing Madden and Grand Theft Auto. Like, it wasn't because I was trying to, like, get some deeper meaning about life. It was only because I just wanted to have fun. And yeah. even when this would, you know, replay on, like, TNT or TBS or whatever, like, you can jump in at any point and just kind of yeah. go from there. Yeah. So, like, especially because it's not really streaming anywhere now. Like, you have to kind of go out of your way to buy it to pay for it. You're probably not going to get a lot of rewatches, but I would say this is... I think is... it's on Showtime right now, actually. Oh, okay. oh it is? That's cool. That's cool. Um, so, yeah, if I catch it, like, in the middle of being on Showtime, like, I'll definitely, like, stop to watch it. But there's not very much about the human condition to learn from this movie. No. Um, no. It's just not. No, no. I think even kind of Matt Damon... I, maybe that's like my name was like introduction to like even though you know google hunting like that was him like basically blowing up and then rounder is like dropping like a recording I, at the same time like i guess this is kind of his introduction to the a-list probably i also hate how much i like matt damon i mean As, he's a guy what do you i i love him in the martian i also am kind of resentful of how good he is in ford versus ferrari mm. did you see his other soderbergh movie informant which is no. excellent. I recommend that highly. I just, he's so good in everything I've seen him in. And I just constantly am like, one of my friends pointed out at one point, and he's like, yeah, you always seem to have a crush on the characters Matt Damon plays, but never Matt Damon. And I was like, see the commonality? Or does he just play a lot of good characters? And like, that's a thing I'm still trying to figure out. I think he's, I think he's kind of being the common man. Like, I think... Even you take like he's done like a pretty eclectic range of movies, and but he's always trying to play like that kind of slightly above neutral man that people think that they are. Right. Like, and I think that's how like even Tom Hanks like that's what Tom Hanks' career basically was, and I think he took the sort of playbook with it. He came through not like Tom Hanks did with making like a bunch of goofy ass eighty movies, but right. he, you know he splashed with you know Good Will Hunting yeah. took the dramatic turn but then actually kind of pivoted to basically the, the Tom Hanks 2.0. He's the everyman with a gloss of a little extra charisma and a little yeah. extra, like, heart. There is one movie that he's, I'm going to go out and say bad in, poorly cast, mm-hmm. doesn't do a great job, not a kind of part he should ever play. School ties. That's a good, that's a good guess. <laughs> when he, he's racist in school re- ties, I'm so sad. <laughs> this is a recent film by a beloved nerd boy, Auteur, Interstellar. I, uh, yeah, I agree. He was an asshole. The heel turn. suffering from the space madness. In actually, yeah, no, it works because of that. Because uh, he's such a nice yeah. guy, you bring your nice guy baggage into the movie. Then he does the heel turn, and it feels like a pretty big, like what the fuck, bro? Yeah, I also, could. I just I couldn't with that movie. I, I, yeah, I was not a the fan. whole chicks are too emotional for space travel, man. But I have some issues about my daughter thing in that movie was like way too fucked up for me fuck that yeah no literally the woman who betrays the the person who says the whole mission is not about science or space i need to get my boyfriend back is like oh come on man don't do anne hathaway like that that's oh man i i think there's a pretty interesting question for nolan the more he's doing films he's just getting worse yeah yeah (laughs) 
His best film is definitely Memento, and I don't think there's any arguing that. And it's a slow downhill slide from there. Remember when we did our Nolan episode and we all kind of agreed, like, yeah, the prestige is really solid and everything else is kind of... But yeah, making a science fiction movie in the present day where you're trying to, like, evoke Kubrick... And it's got the plot of, like, Conquest of Space from 1955, where somebody gets yeah. the space madness and the chick is too emotional for the mission. I'm like, dude, come on. We live in and a post-alien world. Calm down. Still, me and my wife, whenever we see uh, the redhead from that, Chastain, we just go, <laughs> Murph. It's just, can't, can't help it. It's it's painful. But anyway, we weren't supposed to talk about Nolan. I just, I'm I, holding it. I'm I, putting like, out hope much. I had to bring up the one movie I think he's terrible in. Yeah. No, that's totally fair. So you have no hope that Tenet will be good? No. I think he's a pretty terrible writer. Damn. I, I hate Inception so much. Jesus. I didn't And the thing is like I didn't hate Inception, but the thing that that drives me crazy about Nolan is there's all the pretensions of an art house filmmaker making the most dumb ass popcorn shit you could possibly imagine. I really like the prestige because I feel like he was actually trying. Yeah. But I that remember was also that was a movie where the big surprise was something I figured out about twenty minutes in and I'm like, wait, are we supposed to not know who that is under that beard? Are we seriously supposed to get fooled by that? Yeah. For the, for the running time of this long ass movie. I mean, who had a worse beard wig combination? Oh man. Uh him and in uh Prestige or Eric Hart and Aaron Brockovich. It seems to bother you more than it bothered me, man. Bro, those fucking sideburns are fucking. I'll say this though, the be- my favorite Nolan thing since Memento is whatever it is, however many minutes, ten minutes that David Bowie is on screen as Tesla. <laughs> That's some great ass casting. That's some genius casting. And it was another one of those movies where I'm like, everyone in this movie is trash and should die. So why do I care about any of them? If Hugh Jackman, no, she wasn't. So but the Hugh narrative, murdering the narrative, clearly thought she was bad. Remember how I said that The Prestige had a really bad case of men writing women as far as ScarJo was concerned because the entire movie she's just in love or sad? She wasn't a bad person, but she was objectively a bad character. Right. Like, even but though I liked her. It's driving this story. You know what yeah. I mean? Like she's window dressing in that movie. She is literally there to be a bargaining chip for the men. Yeah. And that, to me, was where I started being like, all right, it's a good thing I like Hugh Jackman. Like, here's yeah, here's I, the thing about Memento, though. If Memento wasn't told in the nonlinear way that it was, would Memento actually be an interesting movie? Full disclosure, I gave Memento like four and a half. I like Memento a lot. But if they tell that in a linear way... Is that a movie that's actually going to be made? I think it's still interesting because the performances are so good and the the film noir of it all, the murder mystery of it is good enough. But if you want to ask that question, ask that question about Pulp Fiction and you get a very different answer. If you show Pulp Fiction in order, it is a terrible movie that ends in the most boring way humanly possible. Pulp Fiction is a movie that I need to revisit because I have watched it twice and both times people were talking over it the whole time. Jesus. And like, I understand once you know that's what's happening, like that's kind of the point, but like, I still don't know what's happening. Yeah. I was in like the 11th grade with kids like toddlers running in and out of the movie and i still watch that movie <laughs> i guess that's kind of how much of a psychopath i am well, but 
I just remember, like, at one point we paused halfway through to go get, like, McDonald's. God. <laughs> Jesus Christ. At, at three in the morning in New London, Connecticut. Bro, why why even try at that point? Why, why even I, I wanted my senior friends to like me when I was a freshman. Jesus. I was trying real hard, and then they wound up all being assholes. So, hey. That's what happens when you try hard. Yeah, that's why I don't try anymore. There you go. <laughs> Trying deeply overrated. No, no fucks are given. Pivoting back to Ocean's Eleven, which, I mean, I don't even know if this movie even really deserves a pivot. Like, I think the movie... It's... It's, it's, full, it's fun. It's just a fun-ass yeah. movie. It's with, fun. With it's well-made. Bernie made. Mac doing beautiful Bernie Mac shit. Don Cheadle doing beautiful Don Cheadle shit. Don Cheadle's accent is a little... Uh, 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 and again that strikes me that totally strikes me as a thing where don Cheadle goes up to don to soderbergh and says i want to do a british accent and he goes crikey okay sure whatever man but sometimes it's australian we're all trying to have fun so sure you that's the kind of fun you want to have bernie mac you want to terrify matt damon that's fantastic show me that bro that was he is so great in that God, I, that's my second pa- favorite performance of his after uh, Bad Santa. He is uh, so great in Bad Santa. Well, it's fucked. Yeah? Yeah. Fuck, frankly. He's clean. Oh. Has a fucking whistle. Nothing. No. Oh. Nothing. I mean, shit. Yeah. He curses. Yeah? But never around children. Oh. No criminal record? Yeah. No parking tickets, for Christ's sake. Nothing. No bad habits, even. Oh. Sex, yeah. But man is a sexual being. Yeah. Fucking Darwinian. Oh. Can't do shit about that, Jack. No. Hell, I wouldn't want to. No, of course not. I'm not advocating celibacy. Hope not. It'd be the end of fucking human race. Yeah. Fuck large women. Can I, like, yell about the 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 off-the-syllabus work I did real quick? Because I have some behind-the-candelabra opinions. So I guess it's probably just easier if I read my letterboxed review of this. I rated it three and a half stars, and I said, I don't know who this is for, and I don't know if I liked it, but I can't not deny that it was pretty well made. I I don't know if you have seen Behind the Candelabra, uh, anyone, but it is clearly designed to have been released in a theater, and I believe it was shown on Showtime, like, twice, and then HBO was like, can we have that? And it's on HBO Go right now. As I have mentioned that Soderbergh seems to have a little bit of a men writing writing women problem, he really has a straight man writing non-straight people problem. It is an oof. The accent is an oof. Everything about this movie is, is kind of awkward and hard to watch. But again, he does that thing that he does where everyone is so fucking charming mm. and having an amazing time. And I can't, I couldn't stop watching it. Even when Rob Lowe came in with his plastic surgery face, I was like, oh, but like, I'm still kind of engaged. To be fair to Soderbergh, he didn't, re- he didn't write this movie. No. And he probably and he didn't write Aaron Brockovich and he didn't write Ocean's Eleven. It, it also I don't see why Steven Soderbergh had to make this movie if that makes sense. Like it it is not at all really even done in the style of the other movies that we even talked about. I feel like someone was like, okay, hey hey Steven Soderbergh, can you make a movie that is an hour and forty five minutes of continuous porn setups but with no porn? <laughs> And he was like, yes, and that's what this is. And it's just like, I'm sure he's a good director, 
but I was like absolutely watching this movie being like, my faith is shaken right now. <laughs> I mean, also, from, from like, these three Michael movies, Douglas, what are you doing? <laughs> from these three movies, like, if you were to even just guess or estimate what his career was going to be just watching these three movies pivoting especially the contrast between sex lives and videotape and oceans 11 where you know you go from 88 89 indie guy trying to get into you know the business then compare that to okay i have basically the two sexiest white men in hollywood right now and i have julie roberts who's probably one of the most beautifulest women in hollywood right now and andy garcia who's like a sweetheart but no one really kind of acknowledges in the movies right now and let's just go to las vegas and have fun like i probably would have thought this guy you know sold out to do gap commercials <laughs> like like yeah. i think i think he has a t- he definitely in all three movies he definitely has talent that he displays but i do think that it is kind of a bit telling that the his very earliest work of these three movies at least is the best movie and he ended up into a place where he basically did like a a cotton candy movie to to earn money so i if i would kind of base his career on just these three movies alone i would say he's a guy who's a talent but he for lack of a better word kind of sold out I mean, I don't think it's fair to judge based on these movies because I feel like there's a lot of other stuff that we didn't cover and, like, you know, whatever, right? But I feel that there's a lot of kind of continuing hallmarks, at least in terms of how the characters are, where, like, clearly he gets what makes people attractive and interesting. That is a thing that he enjoys playing with and exploring and trying to figure out. And I think that seeing people in several kind of different roles or modes, whatever you want to call it, you know, still maintaining that... I don't even know how to describe it except to say like very human charm, I think is super, super interesting and super cool. At the same time, you know, having gone to 2013 to visit behind the candelabra, I just wanted like one more trick. I was like, yes, they're very charming. And, Mm. and I feel like sometimes there, there might need to be a little bit more of a point besides like people are interesting in what I was seeing, at least out of the characters. Well, I think if you, if you look at the arc of his whole career, mm-hmm. it's very one for them, one for me, one for them, one for me. Yeah. So he never sells out and stays sold out. Mm-hmm. Uh, every commercial movie, I mean, as a perfect example, I want to talk about selling out. After Ocean's 12, he makes Bubble, which is a movie for three cents, which is entirely about releasing a movie on cable the same day that it's in movie theaters with all non-professional actors. Oh my uh, God, I remember that. Then he makes good the Good German, which is a an, an experiment in making a 1945 Warner Brothers Michael Curtiz type movie with profanity and nudity. It's not good. It's a complete failure, but it's an experiment. Then he makes Ocean's 13, total sellout movie. Then he makes a two part five hour long movie about Che Guevara. You really can't oh, wow. tell the guy has sold out. When his next move after the George Clooney, Brad Pitt, Al Pacino movie is, I'm going to make a movie about Che Guevara. I think it's Benicio Del Toro. Yeah. Yeah. Che part one, Che part two. Then he makes a movie called The Girlfriend Experience, which stars a real life porn star. And then the next movie is The Informant, in which Matt Damon plays a guy who was a government whistleblower, but possibly also a schizophrenic. My overall point being is he then he makes Contagion. Uh, which I actually just watched yesterday because uh, it's the time to watch Contagion. Yes. Uh, anyway, my point is he 
he knows every once in a while you got to do one for them and make a bunch of money and get the clout to then say, okay, I just made the studio $300 million on an Oceans movie. You're now going to give me $8 million to make my Che Guevara biopic that I've wanted to make my whole life. Mm-hmm. Now I'm going to do this other weird-ass experiment. Now I'm going to do another Oceans movie. Now I'm going to do another weird-ass experiment. So I think he's gone back and forth quite a bit over his whole career. And look, after his first three movies, he was pretty sure it was over. Yeah. After Kafka failed, he made a kid's movie set in the Depression, or not a movie about a kid set in the Depression, called King of the Hill. It was very well received. Nobody went to see it. It didn't make a dime. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then he makes The Underneath, which is a film noir with Peter Gallagher, Mm -hmm. which is total made for three cents indie movie that he's ashamed of and it's actually a really interesting little movie then he does some tv direction and then he comes back with out of sight with george clooney made george clooney a movie star everyone forgets that george clooney used to do that weird ass thing where he would shake his head oh yeah that remember remember clooney used to do he had the bobble people of the 90s and yes like day one of shooting out of sight soderbergh literally says to him i'm gonna save your life and career Stop doing that. <laughs> Keep your head steady, George, and you'll be fucking Paul Newman. Does anyone remember that movie, The Descendants, that George Clooney made, where it's just him walking around Hawaii being sad for two hours? I don't know, but I can't get the George Clooney head shake out of my mind because I know exactly what the You know exactly what about. About. And he does it all through The Peacemaker, which was his first big movie after ER. <laughs> Mimi Leader didn't talk him out of it. Steven Spielberg didn't talk about it. I think so that's a Spielberg production. But Soderbergh's like, man, you gotta, you gotta fucking stop doing that. That shit off. And if you see Out of Sight and The Limey back to back, they're both pretty experimental filmmaking wise. They have a lot of stuff that's out of temporal order, not in sort of the way Tarantino just kind of shuffles the cards, but in a sort of, I was saying earlier, The, the Limey is sort of about how memory works. And it's probably my favorite movie in his filmography, and that's from 99. Something he recently did that I really did like was High Flying Bird. I did like that. I have not seen that one. Oh, it's a it's a Netflix exclusive. It came out last year. It was actually super indie. You're talking about the ones for them, one for us. I think this is definitely one for one for us. Like he, I think he yeah. he wanted to do this movie. And he did this movie. It's it's like super low key. It's it's like a it's one of those movies where it's only like set in one day, but the acting's good in it. The story's pretty good, um, and I think the way they ended it was actually pretty pretty well done. I think he shot it all on like iPhones or whatever too. So yeah, I would definitely check that out if you have a chance. Yeah, it looks, you, got a really interesting cast. It looks really great. What yeah. did you think of Contagion revisiting it? I had never seen it before, actually. Oh uh, really? That's one that I had skipped when it came out. It's hard to judge it as a film and not judge it as a piece of prophetic science fiction. Yeah. <laughs> prophetic science fiction, I turned, my wife and I, when we were over, we were both like, that was actually almost a relief to watch it because COVID isn't as bad as the contagion in the movie. Like yeah. the thing in the movie kills you in 48 hours. It's crazy communicable in a way that COVID isn't even remotely communicable. Yeah, yeah. The funniest thing and the saddest thing is the, to the degree that that movie has a villain, I don't know if you remember this, Jude Law plays a blogger who starts pushing <laughs> a homeopathic drug that doesn't Wait. work. Oh my God, I forgot Jude Law is an anti-vaxxer. But he's pushing a homeopathic <laughs> drug that doesn't work. work and right. I said, 
if you had gone up to Soderbergh when he was shooting this movie and said, I had a, I have a great idea. Instead of it being this no-name blogger who makes himself famous trying to sell this bullshit drug that doesn't work, what if the character was the president of the United States of America? Uh, too unbelievable. And he would have said, we're not making a comedy here. We're not making Dr. Strangelove. This isn't a farce. This has to be right. believable. And I mean, so the villain is Julian Assange instead of I feel Trump. like we, the government. we forgot... <laughs> That also, like Alex Jones was, and Tom Brady, yeah. have both sold COVID cures that yeah. just aren't real. But I mean, the thing that the, the the thing that I was saying about it was actually almost like, well, that's a relief. Is like the way that takes off in the movie and ends up killing a million people didn't happen yeah. in the real. Uh, and doesn't it end with them like at least well on the way to figuring out a cure? Yeah, it's. I the, haven't seen it since it came out. Spoiler so. alert a vaccine and people are getting it and what the what the rollout of the vaccine is like yeah but it's very well made it's very, very tense there's a great story about Soderbergh the first screening of that movie he mm-hmm. said the lights came up and you could see everyone in the theater was looking at how closely they were sitting to someone else they were <laughs> looking at they were looking at the the armrests on the movie theater seats like oh man i had my hand on that and this other guy had his hand on that and my coke was in there and oh shit he's like the whole audience flipping out about breathing other people's air and not wearing masks and this is what was that 2004 that was a while ago 2011 Oh, oh, yeah. But still, that was a while ago. And he said, I've never seen a movie audience that uncomfortable after a movie was over. Like, nobody wanted to touch anybody or get near anybody. But also a very well-cast movie. And he also does something in that I think you have to do in movies. So many war movies fail at this. If you're making a movie about a situation in which there is sudden and unpredictable death, you got to kill a movie star in the first five minutes. And my wife, screen. my my wife, who was not familiar with this movie, was like, oh, Gwyneth Paltrow is dead already. I said, yeah, because it's serious, because the stakes are high mm-hmm. and we're fucking you know, we're, we're cutting Gwyneth Paltrow's brain out of her head 10 minutes into the movie to do an autopsy on her. And that like movies like Saving Private Ryan, like pride themselves on realism. But it's like, you know. Sure, Tom Hanks dies in the end, but you know he's going to live two hours in that movie. You know right. he's not knocked off on Omaha Beach. But you want to make a realistic movie, half the movie stars in that squad should be dead in the first ten minutes. Yeah. And you should go, oh, shit, really, Tom? We, we hired Tom Sizemore to blow his brains out 30 seconds into the movie? That is wild. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Well, we need Tom Sizemore, though. Right. L- <laughs> you know, someone else could have you know, dove yeah. in that grenade literally and figuratively. Exactly. Well, <laughs> hey, hey. Giovanni Riabizzi shot in the head, so like start with him. Gwen, but, Gwyneth Paltrow didn't have a lot of time. She had a lot of goop to make. Yeah, goop these she was nuts. Busy. I already tilted my hand. I think Six Lives Videotape are the best of these three movies. David, wh- of these three, what do you think is the best? I mean, I think Sex Lies does more interesting things than the other two. I mean, obviously, Ocean's Eleven is the pinnacle of slick yeah. and. Sex Lies in Videotapes has zero interest in being slick. None. And again, well, slick you in one way. Budget, let's not aim for slick, because we will fall short. Uh, but I think Sex Lies is the is the best movie of those particular three, yeah. I mean, I think it might be as well, but I also think it's the one that is, like, the most one person's vision that we watched. Yeah. And I, I think that might have kind of defogged the lens a little bit. You know, we're not looking through a window, through a lens, through a window again. 
to kind of get to the finished movie. I'm going to be interested to revisit some of his his other stuff because I really like a lot of the directing choices that I did notice. I don't know if it's the scripts that he chooses or the scripts that are kind of tossed at him, but there are definitely a couple where I was like, really? This is this is what we're doing. I hope that I can find more moments of genuine enjoyment and more moments of or fewer moments of I'm rolling my eyes, but okay, fine. Hopefully it'll get better in his other stuff. So of the three, I would probably give it to to Sex Lies and Videotape, but I would give an honorable mention and a good high five to Ocean's Eleven. If it is streaming on Showtime, I would say you know catch it one more time for the funness. I mean, and, and I've also, seen this movie dozens of times already, so I don't need to yeah. it. I, I would really like to watch it one more time where, like, maybe I don't get aggressively hit on by someone I have no interest in. <laughs> speaking of speaking so. of uh, men, with the, the dismount we're going to land, who who was the, in Ocean's Eleven, who was a sexier man, Brad Pitt or George Clooney? I, I got to go. I think I got to go to Brad in this one. I think Brad won it. I'm a slut for a good brunette. So I gotta, I gotta give it to George Clooney. Uh, You're the tiebreaker, Dave. You're the tiebreaker. But the fact that he's into his wife is kind of a turnoff. That that means there's Jesus. less of a less of. Hey, you asked. <laughs> Dave, you're the tiebreaker. I'm I'm more of a Clooney guy. I'm not. I mean, again, it's like yeah. am I doing this? Am I casting them in a movie? I always say I'm a Kinsey 0.0001, which means I'd probably, you know, have sex with David Bowie and no one else. But uh, we we do shame necrophiles on this podcast. Yeah, just no. fair warning. A living, a living Bowie. A living so uh, machine. Back to the Future situations, cat. As uh, as uh, Harry Shearer once said, I'm straighter than German railroad track. But uh, <laughs> given the choice, I mean, I don't know. I, you know, We're coming off a of Fight Club, Brad Pitt. Come yeah. on, y'all. Come on, you guys. He's. I mean. He's pretty as hell, but I don't know. I think I think I'd have more fun with Cloney. Same. More uh, conversation. That said, did, did you see the thing that I posted? A little more conversation, a little less action, please. Yeah. I, I posted Good. a I thing on Facebook <laughs> that was like, a lot of you guys who really liked Tyler Durden are suddenly not okay with property damage. Uh, <laughs> and uh, as as uh, one of my nicknames on the podcast is the Tyler Durden of the DMs, I would feel remiss if I didn't point that it, out. Yeah, that was that was a hell of a pull. That movie didn't appeal to me that much, and I remember mentioning that to my brother-in-law at the time, and he said, you don't have a cubicle job. You don't need a Tyler Durden <laughs> in your life. You are the tar- Tyler Durden in someone else's life. You don't get it. It doesn't appeal to you. You are someone else's evil twin. You are not in need of an evil twin to let you do the shit you want to do. I was like, okay, that's a fair assessment. Well, I guess he's trying to, I guess he was trying to say you're not plugged into the matrix. So maybe that's a compliment. I I think so. I don't know. I could never really get into it. And it might just be the, I'm tired of whiny men thing that I've got going. I don't know. (laughs) I may have just come into this movie already having it be so much part of the zeitgeist that I was like, let me guess. Like, yeah, you know, is is this why this was the poster on your wall? Yeah. Insert name well, of I college mean, boy I, here. Um, I do think that's one of the top ten. I love movies that people love and got the opposite point from it that the authors intended. Yeah. Bro. Oh, yeah. Big that yeah. is like Definitely. top ten. And P.S. I'm not sure that David Fincher 
got the message yeah. uh, that the author intended. There uh, was definitely at least Zack Snyder and Watchmen. At least one guy who I like met went on a date with, and then he's like, "You want to come back to mine?" And I saw a Fight Club poster and left. <laughs> I was like, "That's how you do it." Uh. Find Cat at Cat Chinetti on Twitter, Twitch, and Instagram. Find Marcus at Show and Mad Love on Twitter and Instagram. S H O I N M A D L O V. Please join our Facebook group at We Should Do This Again Sometime and follow us on Twitter at Cat K A T and Mark M A R C. Read us at catseasmovies.tumblr.com and the Mark Rob T H E M A R C R O B dot wordpress.com. Be sure to tip your waitress at Catherine Chidetti on Venmo. This podcast is executive produced by Kellen Conley and Eric Greenley under Hyphen Podcast Group in conjunction with It's Like a Podcast or whatever. Thanks again for listening. We should do this again sometime.